Greetings and welcome to the writings of Soren Kierkegaard. We are going to get straight into uh, this upbuilding discourse here today. And if you wish, uh, you can stick around. I'll just give you some updates on some, some things at the end. Yeah, sometimes I like to put it at, at the front, kind of that review of the week, or sometimes at the back, or sometimes in between. You never know. You never know what I'm going to do. That's a, a luck of the draw. So uh, we're going to just review a little bit of this upbuilding discourse, uh, Love Will Hide a Multitude of Sins, uh, from the book 18 Upbuilding Discourses. Uh, these were written in 1843, and Soren's about 30 years old. Uh, so he began his religious writing, uh, what's called his direct communication, very early on. It wasn't something that he uh, transitioned to the older he got, and that was one of the points that Soren made was that uh, this religious stuff and these writings is not a Johnny come lately. So he's about 30 years of old in 1843. And of course he dies in 1855. So he, um, he, uh, it's about 12 more years uh, living on this planet. The amount of books that Soren produced in the, in his lifetime and the, in the period that he wrote books is, is absolutely amazing. Um, hard to fathom, but it is what it is. He's a spiritual genius. Uh, gifted in writing show for sure uh, but then it is possible that the same power that discovers a multitude of sins the same power that almost multiplies the multitude as it infuses the human heart with love's concerns uh, like a, like a flashlight maybe into a dark room shows uh, maybe an abandoned house shows all the dirt and all the crud and all the leftover um, nonsense and broken furniture love when it comes into a heart uh, would uh, reveal um, sin uh, because it's light and uh, uh, the way that light works is it exposes the darkness uh, so that's Soren's argument here essentially even though they didn't have flashlights I don't think I have stuff akin to it candles or something lan lanterns but then it is possible the same power that discovers a multitude of sins, the same power that almost multiplies the multitude as it infuses the human heart with love's concern, is it possible that the same power can hide it in the same person? So Soren's asking a question, and then he goes about answering it. And yet, would it be good if this were not so? What then is love? Is it a dream in the night that once has merely that one has merely by sleeping? Is it a dream in the night that one has merely by sleeping? Is it a stupor in which everything is forgotten? Uh, shall we hold love in such disdain that it is in this sense that it covers a multitude of sins? Uh, then it would be, no, uh, be better to retain the light mentality of youth or the adult's self-examination or the individual's own self-righteousness. Must wisdom be bought, understanding be bought, peace of mind be bought, the blessedness of heaven be bought, must life be bought, and the pain of birth, but love is not supposed to know any birth pains, love is no dream, which was the name of last week's podcast, of course. But I thought it was useful to review this. Um, if we were to call it that, then it would be... Best to say, this, its first pang, is a troubled and anxious dream that ends with a blessed awakening and the love that covers a multitude of sins. Love takes everything, 
it takes a person's, perf a person's perfection, and if he wants to clutch it, then love is severe with him, but it also takes his imperfection, his sin, his distress. It takes away his strength, but also his suffering. Or what terrible suffering would love not hide as if they did not exist, but only love's joy over rescuing another. But when love takes it from him, then love indeed hides it. So it's maybe a disarming someone with a weapon. Sin is, uh, sin is like a sword or it's uh, something damaging. It's like a poison. So love would take that sin from, from the person. Then love indeed hides it. When it takes everything, it hides everything. When in proportion to what it takes from him, it gives him something else instead. Then it hides uh, beyond all understanding. People have often thought, now this is new. Uh, so we have about two and a half pages. Let's see, one, two, three, four. About four pages left of this uh, upbuilding discourse. I am confident that we'll finish this today. People have often thought that there were other means that could take away and thereby hide what they may, what they might wish hidden. But an ancient pagan has already said it does not help a person to ride away from care. It is sitting behind him on the horse. Uh, so that's from a, a poet by the name of Horse. And I did a lot of research on Horse. I think I'll spare you the details, lest I be accused of rambling. But I did a lot of research. I might get into it at the end if I have some time. But that's from Horace, who was a Roman poet around the time of uh, I think it's Caesar Augustus, right? Uh, Octavian, the one who defended... The uh, the Caesar side after Caesar was Caesar was murdered, you know all that Mark Antony Brutus stuff. These words of his love have often been repeated, uh, but that's a good point that you can't ride away from things; uh, they just chase you down usually. Um, things of a psychological and spiritual nature they they don't go away; they just keep coming back. You can't ride away from those cares. You take them with you. These words of his have often been repeated as words that manifest a profound insight into the human heart. And yet, if that old pagan, uh, so Horace wasn't a Christian, of course, who rode through life on his horse with care behind him, if he didn't have to look back, but love does not do that, how would the eye that loves find time for a backward look since the movement um, it did so, if it did so, would have to let its object go. How would the ear that loves find time to listen to the accusation since the moment it did, it would have to stop listening to the voice of love? And if the eye strays after it, if the, if the ear eavesdrop, then the heart is petty, and this is not the fault of love. Indeed, this angers love. The person who thinks of his own perfection does not love, and he who takes his own perfections into account does not love. Indeed, if he thought himself so imperfect that he was disqualified from love because of this, he would show that he did not love since he would take his imperfection into account and include it in his accounting as if it were, uh, if, it, if, it, uh, if this were a perfection. But love takes everything. And the person who excludes himself either wants to be happy about himself and not be to be happy about love or wants to be sad about himself and not 
be happy about love. But in order to love a person in this way, uh, one must have the courage uh, to will to love. The secret earthly love is that it bears the mark of God's love without which it would become silliness or insipid philandering, as if a person in comparison with another were so perfect that he could arouse this anxiety or truly be able to take everything. To love God in this way requires a humble, bold confidence. So this is a bit of a paradox. Um, Soren was big on paradox. So how can we both be humble and bold at the same time? Those two things don't tend to be seen as coexisting. But we need to be humble before God. But in that humility, be bold, because he tells us to be bold. In every human heart, God's love awakens crying like a newborn baby, not smiling like the child that knows its mother. Not smiling like the child that knows its mother. My apologies for blowing my nose. Uh, last week, somebody on Twitter was responding to a comment I had made about the woman caught in adultery. It had nothing to do with this podcast initially. I just happened to mention that Soren had written uh, about this woman caught in adultery issue. Very insightfully in that I had addressed it in my podcast and somebody put underneath my comment, not realizing that I was the person of the podcast because the person was being probably too uh, too rash. Uh, I just didn't understand it, but they put some criticism of my voice <laughs> and how I slurped my coffee. And I was like, did you realize I'm the person that put this comment underneath here? And she said something to the effect of, I tried to listen to that podcast, but uh, his voice and his slurping of the coffee. I'm surprised she didn't mention the blowing of my nose because I think that's pr probably the grossest of all three. As far as my voice, can't do much about that. She seemed like she was being a mean girl, kind of middle school. I don't know why people do that stuff, but whatever. It makes you feel better. I blocked her. After responding to her just with a ha-ha, like, uh, I'm the person that just put the first comment in here in case you didn't realize that, which I doubt you do because you were certainly pretty unaware that I was the individual that you're referring to. Um, but uh, I just blocked her. I don't waste my time with people anymore. If you're not into it, move. Go somewhere else. Find some other tree to bark up. And I don't say that with any sense of animosity, I hope. Just, just go. Just leave. You don't have to be here. Just go. It's fine. Uh, but yeah, I can't change my voice. And uh, slip me with the coffee. It's hot. And uh, I don't have a microphone that I turn off or can turn off. I suppose I don't have to slurp so loudly. So I'll take that under uh, under advisement. But blowing the nose, man. I'm surprised she, she just didn't listen to enough of it, I guess. Which is good. I probably ticked her off enough that she just didn't stick around for the nose blowing. So if you tolerate my voice... My slurping and my blowing of the nose. Good for you. You're hiding a multitude of sins. Practicing what Soren would tell you to do. Uh, to love God in this way. I don't think they're sins, but anyway. To love God in this way, the humble, bold confidence in every human heart. God's love awakens crying like a newborn baby, not smiling like the child that knows his mother. Its mother. But now when, when God's love wants to hold fast to the Lord, the enemy rises against one in all its terror. And the power of sin is so strong that it strikes with anxiety. But love does not shut its eyes in the hour of danger, and it volunteers itself, as a venerable hymn writer says, to press through the air of sin 
into the repose of paradise. And I looked up who um, who wrote this hymn, uh, which is interesting. And you know, there's all these citations in the back of the book, so you want to look it up. And the guy that wrote this was a Danish uh, clergyman, and um, he uh, the guy had a hard life. He was outwardly successful, and he um, but inside inside his life, he had a son that went insane. I think his wife died or something. So when this guy writes through the arrow of sin into the repose of paradise, he's not writing in a way that uh, someone who's w not well acquainted with suffering. Uh, so he wrote a lot of hymns, apparently, and uh, pretty cool. The guy's name was uh, into uh, into the repose. The guy's name was Adolf Brorson, B R O R S O N. And the name of the hymn is Through the Arrows of Sin into the Repose of Paradise. Or that's the lyric, exactly. So that's cool. Um, Adolf Borson. It's interesting how popular the name Adolf was in Germanic countries, which uh, Denmark kind of is. Uh, but Adolf went out of fashion, of course, after the uh, rise and fall of Adolf Hitler. I'm sure a lot of people named their kids Adolf initially uh, when Adolf was on his rise. Maybe it was considered sacrilege to do like name your kid Jesus or something. Although Latino people do that all the time. Ugh. But uh, yeah, the name Adolf, you don't see around anymore. That, that's one name that's put into, been put into the dustbin of history. I didn't slurp that loud. I'm making progress. And the further away it sights the multitude of arrows, the more terrible they seem. But the closer it presses forward, the less it, seems it sees the arrows. And when it has intercepted all the arrows in its heart, and is wounded by them, it no longer sees them, but sees only love and the blessedness of paradise. So you're going to take some arrows if you love people. When Jesus sat at the dinner one day in a Pharisee's house, a woman entered. No woman had been invited as a guest. And um, in, a, in, in a Israel society of this time and before, and perhaps afterwards, as long as it lasted in Israel, uh, women were considered second-class citizens. And there was a prayer uh, that went something along the lines that men would thank God they weren't made a woman. And it ties back to uh, Eve and the sin of being deceived, right or wrong. Uh, I think it's wrong because we're both, both genders are sinners. Uh, sometimes it's popular these days for women to portray themselves as above men spiritually and morally. I don't think that's the case. We just sin differently. I think men are more violent. We've talked about that plenty of times. No woman has been invited as a guest, so that would be considered really improper. This one, least of all. So if you're going to invite a woman, you certainly wouldn't invite this one, who was uh, morally and sexually suspect, apparently. That's the inference. We said how the, uh, the Pharisees and the scribes seemed very intent to point out the sexual sin of women, and conveniently ignoring the male themselves in particular. Uh, so a lot of projection going on, not taking the log out of their own pants. Um, figuratively speaking, out of their eye. You know what I'm trying to say. I'm not trying to be crude here. If nothing else had been, um, uh, no woman had been invited as guest, this one least of all, because the Pharisees knew that she was a sinner. If nothing else had been able to terrify and stop her, the Pharisees' proud contempt, their silent disapproval, their sanctimonious anger, would probably have frightened her away, but she stood behind Jesus at his feet, weeping, and began to wet his feet with his tears and wipe them with the hair of her head 
and to kiss his feet and anoint them with the ointment. That was perfume that she had had as part of her dowry. Uh, the perfume was something that she would bring into a marriage. So maybe she is saying, in a way, I'm never going to get married. So I might as well break this ointment, this perfume, and put it upon the Lord's feet who loves me. And it wasn't some weird sexual thing. It was an act of devotion. Uh, generally when kids cry, I know from my experience of working in schools and reform schools, et cetera, et cetera, when kids cry, they were generally pretty legit, but believe it or not, there are people that can cry on command and are not legit about it. It just allows them to escape responsibility. But generally if somebody cries, it means there is a genuine regret there might not be repentance, but there could be at least some regret. But this is clearly repentance here. There was a moment of anxiety, what she had suffered in solitude, her grief, the accusations of her own heart, became even more terrible because her heart was well aware that its charges had endorsement in the faces of the Pharisees, and that its charges had endorsements in the faces of the Pharisees. That's a good line that its charges had endorsements in the faces of the Pharisees. So a little bit of alliteration there, but it's, it's certainly true. Her own heart was condemning her, but she went on, and in beating the enemy, she beat herself to calmness. Uh, and when she had found rest at Jesus' feet, she forgot herself and, the, and her work of love, and she wept. She finally forgot what she had wept over at the beginning, uh, the tears of repentance became tears of adoration. Uh, so that's beautiful. Uh, tears of repentance became tears of adoration. Uh, think about that. That's a beautiful, it's a beautiful sentence. She was forgiven her many sins because she loved much. Those there were those in the world who, after wasting their lives in the service of desire, fi finally lost themselves and scarcely recognize themselves anymore. This is uh, desire's shameful and appalling fraud that it defrauds a person out of himself or herself and lets him keep only a superficial passing intimation of authentic being, that it arrogantly wants to defraud God out of his co-knowledge and creation. This woman was granted the grace to weep herself out of herself, as it were, and to weep herself into uh, peacefulness of love. The person who loves much is forgiven much, and this is love's blessed deception, that the person who is forgiven much loves much, and that to need much forgiveness becomes an expression of love's perfection. Yet even if love was capable of removing from the accused sight a multitude of sins so that lost in love he saw them no more, because love hid them, is he hereby saved forever? Will nothing halt him on his way and suddenly make him recollect what love has hidden? Is no judgment pronounced on a person from without? Does love have the same power here also, so that not even the judge discovers a multitude of sins because love hides them? Can a judge be deceived? Does he not penetrate every veil and disclose everything? Can a judge be bribed? Does he not uncompromisingly require what is the judgment's requirement? Can the world's judgment be deceived? Offer it your love, and you will continue to be a debtor. Bring it your heart's best emotion, and you will continue to be a debtor. Offer it tears of repentance, and the judgment requires its own justice. 
Can love's judgment then be bribed? Offer it gold, and it will despise you. Offer it power and dominion, and it will disdain you. Offer it the glories of the world, and it will condemn you for loving the glories of the world. Trumpet your wonderful deeds, and it will condemn you for not being in love. The judgment requires what is the judgment's requirement. And the world's judgment requires what belongs to the world. And this conceals from the world whatever it is lacking. But love's judgment requires what belongs to love. Because the person who judges makes requirements, but the person who makes requirements seeks as the proverb, as the person who hides a multitude of sins uh, seeks love. So this all comes out of Proverbs um, 17.9. So Peter is quoting uh, Proverbs in the Old Testament. Uh, in his epistle but the person who finds love hides a multitude of sins uh, the person who finds what he sought indeed conceals what he did not seek so then are not the apostolic words a comfort that gives bold, uh, gives bold confidence in the face of judgment are they not a comfort precisely as it is needed is it not beyond all understanding exclamation point to remember everything is a great thing uh, to the understanding that love hides a multitude of sins this foolishness to it or should we deprive ourselves of this comfort by sensibly wanting to measure our love so to speak by wanting to portion it out as compensate compensation for particular sins kind of like a, a concessionary machine or concession machine and uh in this way continue in the, in the sins so you just uh, that's very catholic it sounds like you sin you go confess it and it becomes kind of a routine It's like kind of a transaction there. <clears throat> Should we shut ourselves out from love if we continue in love? Who is it then who accuses? <clears throat> or is it not the love in a person that, hide, that hid a multitude of sins from himself? The same love that out of love hides a multitude of sins? Question mark. Indeed, even if love had not entirely triumphed in a person, even if anxiety discovered what love did not have the strength to cover in him, Yet on the day of judgment, love will come to the aid of uh, love in him. Uh, love. <laughs> Yet on the day of judgment, <clears throat> love will come to the aid of love in him <coughs> and drive out fear and hide a multitude of sins. Apologize for coughing. I apologize for being human. I'm so sorry. I can't believe it. Uh, when Jesus sat, uh, sat at dinner one day, so he goes back to the story again. Now, there's a couple of different instances where this uh, this kind of this scenario kind of uh, looks similar. There's two different stories that are really interesting. They're very similar, but they're not the same because they happen in different locations. Uh, but they involve a woman, presumably caught in sexual sin, who approaches Jesus. Um, I did a writing uh, a writing on that one time. I won't get into that now. When Jesus, so it gets back to the story. When Jesus sat at dinner one day at Pharisee's home. A, winter, a woman entered the house. She was downhearted. She was carrying a multitude of sins. Uh, so that's a way of being downhearted for sure. The judgment of the world was legible on the face of the Pharisees. Uh, so the, the Pharisees' face uh, re reflected the judgment of the world. It could not be deceived. Her sorrow and her tears concealed nothing but disclosed everything. And there was nothing to discover but a multitude of sins. She was not seeking the world's judgment, however, but stood... She stood behind Jesus at his feet and wept. Then love discovered what the world concealed, that the love in her. And since it had been victorious in her, the Savior's love came to her assistance, 
so that, uh, that the one who was released from a debt of 500 pennies might love more. Again, that's a scriptural story. I won't get back into that. Uh, but it's the, uh, the servant who's forgiven a, uh, uh, an infinite debt by the master who goes around and then shakes down all the peers for a penny and is acting very vociferously, and the master hears of it and is angry. And he made uh, the love in her even more powerful to hide a multitude of sins, the love that was already there because her many sins were forgiven her because she loved much. Again, the Pharisees hated this. And this under, under, under um, what's the word? The Pharisees and the scribes, to some extent the Sadducees, they were all part of this sacrificial system, which meant that the marketplace was in the middle of uh, the sinner and the forgiveness through the sacrificial system in the temple. And the Pharisees got paid to be a part of that system. They were the uh, deliverers of that that uh, mediation through the sacrifice of animals people had to buy animals they had to do all these religious acts that involved money so fair the pharisees are being struck at their pocketbook too when jesus forgives this woman which the pharisees didn't want to do of course um they didn't see themselves as more similar to the woman and certainly not similar to jesus they saw themselves as morally out, outstanding But Jesus is, is attacking their, their checking accounts, whatever that word would have been back in the day, because he's saying that he has the power to forgive sins, and the woman did not have to pay him something, did not have to uh, give him money in order for him to f love her and forgive her. So the Pharisees hated that because that deconstructed their, their, entire, uh, their entire scam, their entire system. And when Jesus was in the temple and he flipped over the uh, tables and the Pigeons and the doves went flying and all the money went clanking on the floor. You know, Jesus is basically saying the temple is not a place of transaction, financial transaction. You don't come here to be forgiven by giving money. You give up, give yourself. Uh, it's, not, it's not just some outward observance. So people wanted a, a simple way to be forgiven. They didn't want to repent. They didn't want to cry. They didn't want to weep. They didn't want to be heartbroken. They wanted to give a a check or a piece of gold or something and then walk out and do what they wanted to do. And this is part of why Martin Luther and the reformers had such a problem with the Catholic church because the Catholic church was teaching at the time, if you know the history, of course, some of you do that, um, Turtzel or whatever the guy's name from the Catholic church was going around, uh, to peasants and saying, if you wanted to get your loved ones out of purgatory, or if you wanted to get yourself out of purgatory, which is that in between state between heaven and hell, which is not particularly scriptural. It's in Maccabees, which is a concerned apocryphal book of the um, Old Testament. But this idea that uh, money would uh, add to Christ's merit, like somehow money to build St. Peter's and the Vatican would add to the merit of Christ. And Martin Luther saw that being manipulated, of course. A lot of fearful people thought by just giving their money, which they probably could ill afford to give the amount they were giving because they were so fearful, um, that the Catholic Church was building this uh, ostentatious and ornate and over-the-top uh, equivalent of the temple. So it's kind of like the uh, temple came back, you know, and people were now in a financial transaction to have their sins forgiven. So sword ends, uh, and that's why I'm not a Catholic. Um, I think that, that history is there, and it still exists to some extent, not as much as it did. The Reformation is the best thing that ever happened to the Catholic Church, because without it, it would have it would have collapsed. It was so 
rotten inside that the Counter-Reformation at least addressed some of the more egregious abuses of the clergy in, in that system. But there's much good in Catholicism too, so I'm not, I'm not saying it's the Antichrist or anything like that. It's just mixed up. I see it as a combination of faith and works uh, in, in an unhealthy way. We are saved by, faith, by grace through faith and not by works. Uh, Paul says that clearly. But we are to do works after we are forgiven because it's an expression of the love that we have for God and people. So Soren ends, Blessed is the person whose heart witnesses with him that he loved much. Blessed is the person when God's Spirit, which knows all, witnesses that he loved much for him. There uh, is comfort both here and hereafter because love hides a multitude of sins. Thank God for that. So we're uh, 28 minutes in here. Uh, let me uh, just add a few other things here as we uh, continue through. I read an interesting story. It was in the Morning Telegraph, which I think is uh, the Tyler Morning uh, uh, Telegraph, which is Texas. And there was an assistant bowling coach that was married to the coach of the team. Uh, a woman was the coach of the team, of this bowling team. Now, bowling is kind of an odd sport. It's kind of fringy at this point. But it used to be very, very popular. But there's still bowling teams on the collegiate level, probably NCAA. So the woman coach, uh, head coach, had an assistant coach who was her husband. And the husband wound up having an adulterous relationship with one of the bowlers on the team. And um, there's so much wrong with this. Now let's get back to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and these women caught, caught in adultery. Okay, so what the Pharisees would have done is they would have gone after the student who is the student bowler. Now perhaps it was consensual, but that's always a hard thing to untangle. Now she probably was above the age of 18, so not technically like um, having sex with a minor, uh, which has more severe consequences, but it's adultery. And the Pharisees would have zeroed in on the woman uh, college student who was the bowler. Now, these things, these power relationships are complicated because if a coach uh, expresses um, and makes moves towards the uh, woman in this situation, the bowler, and she is, feels kind of trapped because she loves bowling, but she feels like she has to uh, respond to him in order to retain her place on the team or perhaps to gain status. This happens too, like when people talk about the Me Too movement. The dark side of that entire movement, which is essentially pretty good, which where women said they had been sexually coerced or they had been harassed sexually in jobs to uh, have been object of males' uh, abuses and things like that. There are women that play that. And anybody who doesn't admit that is just being dishonest. There are women that use their sex appeal and their attractiveness to gain power, possessions, uh, privilege, all these type of things. So it's complicated. Okay, but a power relationship where you have a coach and the uh, student is underneath them. There's a differential in power there that creates an unequal situation. These are not equals in terms of uh, the authority. The coach has more authority and can misuse it, of course, and be coercive. Um, but the new dude's name is public. His name is Steve Lemke. Uh, said his wife learned of the relationship when he saw text messages, when she saw text messages from the woman on his phone. Okay, so this is Mr. Lemke being quoted. I knew it was kind of a no-no, but there's not a rule saying it can't happen. Apparently the uh, policies on this bowling team and perhaps the university were lacking. I knew it was kind of a no-no. Uh, most, most schools and most universities have a plethora of documents to forbid this type of stuff with all kinds of consequences spelled out. So if indeed the uh, bowling team and the university didn't have those policies, then 
I don't know if that's accurate or not, but indeed that was a weakness in their system because you can't afford not to have those policies clearly stated out because people will abuse them. Okay, so I knew it was kind of a no-no. So it's a no-no, just like uh, brushing your teeth before you eat. Just a no-no. But there's not a rule saying it can't happen, Steve Limke said. There's not a law saying I'm going to go to jail for doing something like this. There's nothing in stone. I guess it's just an ethics code. Like we frown upon it, but there's not, no rule, there's no law broken. <laughs> it's not as ironic that he said there's nothing in stone, because as we have talked about quite a bit, uh, the Ten Commandments are still in force. Uh, the ethical law is still in force. And one of the commandments is do not commit adultery. So when he said there's nothing in stone, he's actually not being correct. Now, we don't have the commandments with us anymore in stone, but the Bible says that God came down and wrote upon the stone with his own finger and inscribed the commandments upon the stone. So there's an irony in this. But this guy is basically saying this is social mores. There's nothing ethical about what he did or didn't do. Um, there's no law broken. And this poor sucker is untutored in, in the reality that God's law is still in effect, man. And uh, he's going to have a judgment day if he doesn't repent of it. The student involved in the affair is no longer on the team after exhausting her eligibility. And um, there's a power, uh, power differential, and this is pretty common in, in terms of history, is that men had power over women. So often women caught in adultery were coerced into it because they had to. They were threatened uh, with uh, violence, perhaps, or they needed, they needed the man for something, uh, maybe economic protection, because women didn't have the means to earn a living uh, in that society often. So they were given very limited opportunities. So don't blame uh, women for doing what they had to do to survive uh, to some extent. But I thought this was an interesting, um, an interesting um, example of a modern situation that goes back to this idea. This guy doesn't call it sin. So he's not gonna, he's not gonna be forgiven of it. And it's not gonna get covered because it's not being forgiven. So he's in trouble. And he clearly needs, uh, needs someone who cares about him to tutor him on the reality of God's law and his guilt before it. Now, we're all guilty. I get that. Um, but we also need to uh, bring it to the light and confess it and to uh, be forgiven of it and not go back to it. If you go back to it, guess what? You probably didn't repent to start with. Re is just uh, repentance is obviously a way of turning away from, um, turning away from sin. So I was in a situation uh, uh, last, maybe about 10 days ago, I was out for a run. Now, I'm almost 60 years old, and I'm not in the greatest of shape, but I'm trying to get back into running even though I have a bad knee. So I'm trying to balance these things out like a bad knee, but I want to increase my fitness. Mountain biking is tough because I like to ride with people, and it's rainy out, so the trails are dangerous. I can technically run in the rain. It's not a big deal, not lightning and stuff. But you know, r running is a very easy thing to do in one way. But like I said, I have a bad left knee. So it's a, it's a trade-off. I have to figure out ways of fitness to try to reduce my weight. I want to run more to lose weight so my cholesterol improves and my heart gets stronger because I have high cholesterol right now, blah, 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 blah. So I was out for a run, and I was coming around my neighborhood. I wasn't quite in my neighborhood yet, but I, I do a route that's about three miles. And uh, this horn was just like, bah, 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 bah. 
And I was probably like 100 feet away when the horn started going off. I thought it was one of those situations where um, like it, so there was a malfunction in the car. But this guy that was out on the yard of this uh, development, this townhouse development, kind of shouts in the car and, and tells the individual inside the car to cut it out. So I find out as I continue to run, it's a little kid inside the car that had been told by a, a father figure or maybe an uncle or just somebody in the community, hey, cut it out. Stop honking the horn. Uh, which I appreciated because I didn't know what the reason of why the horn, the horn was honking, but the uh, the person straightened it out. And I always presume it was the kid's dad, but maybe not. Uh, so the kid then proceeded, uh, once he was told not to honk the horn anymore, he proceeded to start yelling out the window of the car. He was inside the car for some reason, and he's just yelling, Run faster! Run faster! Run faster! So <coughs> as I approach the car and as I pass it, this kid is getting louder and louder and more and more abrasive in his yelling. He's about five years old. And so I'm being yelled at by a five-year-old, told me to run faster. And I, in my head, I was like, do you think I'd be running this slow if I could run faster? Um, but I, I just ignored the kid from beginning to end. I just didn't even acknowledge the screaming. And this to me is like how uh, sometimes love covering a multitude, uh, multitude of sins can operate. That we just don't participate my concern was, this is this is kind of tactically speaking, that if I had said something, I don't know what the relationship of that dude was out on the yard walking around to the kid inside the car. Again, I presume it was the father, maybe. Uh, but if I had said something back to the kid, like, yeah, you know, shut the F up, um, and the dad or whoever heard it, it'd be a good opportunity, and probably not that unlikely, the dad would be pissed off that I yelled at his kid, even though the kid was in the wrong. And these are how situations escalate, you know. It's like one person does something wrong and the other person retaliates but often retaliates in a stronger way than the other people think was appropriate so then the other people now retaliate and this is why jesus talks about us turning the other cheek because somebody has to discontinue that process the escalation is inevitable in most people so i just ignored the kid and i was kind of laughing to myself and i was a bit irritated but ultimately i found it kind of funny um, the kid's got a big mouth for a five-year-old. I would have never done that as a five-year-old. The idea that I would yell at a complete stranger uh, coming across the street, somebody in particular who's 6'8", that kid's got some problems already. And it's got to get corrected for sure. Um, but it was funny, and it made me laugh a bit. But I just didn't feed into it, which caused this kid to get more and more frustrated. And it was interesting as I ran by, he just kept getting louder and more aggressive and more abrasive and I just kept ignoring I didn't even look at him and I think it's a good way of dealing with negativity uh, sometimes the love has to be more active you know it has to reciprocate in a, in a more active way but I think passivity is love too which is saying I'm just not going to go there it's not worth my time it's not worth your time I'm, I'm not going to increase the uh, the vehemence of this situation which often doesn't end well there's people that die in cities and all over the place in trailer parks in rural America because something started small that got big, and pretty soon people are bringing out the guns. I just read about a story in Texas. Texas has a lot of these stories, or maybe it was New Mexico, that somebody um, had taken a reserved movie theater seat inside of a theater, and the guy came in with his girlfriend, so there was a couple already sitting at least one of the two reserved seats, which they do in, do in uh, theaters these days, that you have to reserve your seat. And I was at a movie yesterday, Asteroid City by Wes Anderson, and I went to the 1210 matinee, 
but they make you reserve a seat even though there's only two people in, or three people in the theater. So apparently this guy walks in with his girlfriend and there's a couple, older couple sitting in one of, the, one of the, at least one of the seats. And it turns into an argument where the dude who was coming into the theater where somebody was sitting in a seat pulls out a gun. Now there's a lot happened before that. I think there was some popcorn thrown or something. But the dude winds up shooting the guy inside the seat. Okay, over, over over a theater seat. Now, there was staff involved, and they were trying to resolve it. It got ugly. Uh, the dude died, and then the dude that did the shooting got shot somehow, and then is going to be charged with murder all over a theater seat. That's pretty, that's pretty stupid and pretty sinful, but we've all been there. We've all done things at least somewhat in that direction. So, kind of fascinating. Got to be willing to turn away. And like with this woman on Twitter... Uh, I mean, she probably felt like she was being snarky and being funny and was going to get all kinds of accolades for being such a such a hot taker. But again, like I'm there. I'm the person that made the comment. I'm not trying to promote myself. I, I'm clearly trying to give Soren the credit where credit is due. And Soren would point to Christ and Soren would point to God. He wouldn't say, give me the credit, give God the credit. Uh, but then the person makes a snarky comment, which is kind of part and parcel for Twitter these days. It's all about ping-ponging, uh, slamming the person back. And it's and it's it's not a good dynamic, and I do it too at times, but I try to be purposeful about it. I just don't do it because I'm trying to vent my spleen. I try to choose important topics, and I get in debates with people on t important topics because I think silence to some extent is a sense. So pick your battles carefully, but if you pick them, fight them well. So I have to make decisions. Is this like a theater seat issue, or is this something that's more important? And and I often make decisions to not get into it because it's not that important. But if it is important, then I'll I'll say something. And with this woman who was being snarky and was kind of being a mean girl, mean middle school girl, you know, initially my comment was, ha ha, uh, no worries. Like you're allowed to like this or not like it. That's completely fine. Uh, that's cool. Um, but then I thought better of it, and I said, why don't I just block her? Like, why why engage this person? She's already being non-constructive. If you criticize somebody for their voice, uh, like Soren was made fun of because he had a bad back, and ultimately he died of some kind of infection in his back. This is what the theory is when he had the, um, he had some kind of, like, a seizure out on the street, and they had to take him to the hospital. But I think the diagnosis was he had some kind of bacterial infection or polio in his back, which, you know, led to him having a hunchback or something like that. And he was made fun of because of his appearance, which is really a cheap way of getting back at somebody. When uh, uh, Soren had taken on the Corsair, that literary magazine, and asked it to be better and than it is rather than just a rag, just a, a rag of busting on people. Uh, the Corsair took him up on the fight, but didn't fight fair, started criticizing him for his appearance. So Soren's made fun of his appearance. It's, it's you know, when you criticize somebody's voice, uh, it gets very, very close to just being unfair. Like, it, it, it can't control that. I don't know. Maybe my voice is not appealing to some people. I don't know. I don't know what she meant by that, but apparently my voice is very grating on her. Uh, I know my voice tends to be a bit monotone, and that may play into the fact to be be affected by the fact that I have cerebral palsy on the right side of my brain. It might because my vocal cords have been affected muscularly by that. Who knows? I can be more intonation-oriented, but I tend to fall more into a flat kind of cadence. That's how I speak. I get all philosophical and stare out the window. Uh, so to pick on somebody about that or comment about that, you got to be really careful because that comes off as uh, being cheap and being unfair. So anyway, I just blocked her and... Um, you know, I didn't, didn't wish, uh, wish evil upon her or c 
consequences, but I don't have to engage that, and I don't have to listen to that, so that she can move on, and I don't have to be exposed to that. So that's kind of my uh, boundary, but that's also covering a multitude of sins. I'm not saying what she did was sinful, although I think it was likely unfair. I don't know if she was trying to be mean. She was just being mean. Uh, but anyway, so it, it's good to move on. So just a few more things. If you want to know a little bit more about Horace, uh, the poet that talked about the uh, care rides with the person that they can't ride away from it. I thought it was interesting. Um, the quote was, But fear and threats climb the self-same spot the owner does, nor does black care quit the brass-bound galley, and he even takes her back seat behind the horseman. Uh, this is interesting. So that's one translation. This is just funny how translations can differ. And another one says, Care mounts even the brass bound galley nor fails to leave behind the troop of uh, troops of horses uh, swifter than the stag swifter than Eurus when he drives the storm before him now Eurus was one of the four gods in Greece that uh, denoted the wind so Eurus was the um, was the east wind and it was associated with autumn but there was four winds emanating from the sun Helios uh, so there were four wind gods directional and Euros apparently comes from, um, it's interesting, uh, I, I did a little research from this. Euros is um, derived from a Greek myth, which is Europa and Cadmus, which were sister and brother. And Europa was seduced by Zeus, who had changed himself into a bull and took her away. And uh, so was t uh, took, her, took her to Europe uh, from... Uh, Boethius, which is now modern Lebanon, uh, Phoenicia. So uh, Cadmus came to try to rescue his sister Europa in Greece from Zeus or on the Parthenon, all that Acropolis type of stuff. And apparently the uh, legend and myth says that Cadmus introduced the, the phonetic alphabet to the Greeks, and that's how the Greeks got up. But that's just legend. But Europe comes from the Phoenician word Eurob, meaning where the sun sets, west of Phoenicia, west of Borphus. Borphorus. Borphorus. So that's just some interesting factoids. Uh, Horus worked for the emperor, or was at least in cooperation with the emperor. Uh, he wasn't originally Roman. He was in the Italian area, I guess. So interesting. Interesting stuff. Um, he wrote, he uh, wrote about uh, Horace wrote about uh, traditional Epicurean themes of uh, peace and care and uh, moderation, lyrical odes echoing many traditional Epicurean themes. So that was cool. I like doing that little research. Sometimes when I see something like a citation, I like to do a little bit more reading about it because there's a lot there. And uh, that's the part of my learning nature is I don't take anything on face value. I like to pull the thread. So I learned a lot about um, Horace the Poet. Learned more about the uh, four winds of uh, Greek, Greek mythology and the sun god Helios. And that this uh, Greek god was the wind of autumn. So the four winds associated with the seasons, of course. And that was from Epicurious.net if you want to look that up. So good stuff. That's it for today. Sorry I went a bit long. Um, but maybe it's best to put some of these kind of these rants at the end. So if you don't like them, you can just uh, just uh, not listen to it, which is always an option. God bless.